Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning, friends. Happy spring. It's good to see you. Glad to be here with you. My name is Michael, and I have the privilege of being on the ministry staff here, and I'm looking forward to you with to talking with you about a couple of events from the life of Jesus. You've heard them read. Go ahead and turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 4 in your Bibles, or if you're looking at the Bible app, you can turn that to Luke 4. And uh, we're going to start there here in a little bit. And as you're turning, I got a question for you. Um, do you ever wonder if you don't know your friends as well as you think you do? You ever wonder if you're rubbing shoulders and doing life with people who you just sort of assume you know what they think about things, but then sometimes you have to back up and realize, I may actually have the wrong answer. I read an article this last week. It was published in the, in the Boston Globe uh, a few years ago, August of 2009, by a guy named Drake Bennett. And he, the article was called, What You Don't Know About Your Friends. And he shared a bunch of research that at the time was pretty new about how most of us go through most of our life thinking we know people better than we actually do. And he talked about how, you know, all of us have seen these newlywed game shows. You've seen those kind of things, right? Where two people will get up and kind of embarrass themselves publicly by how much they don't know about the person to whom they just committed their entire life. And we watch and we laugh. But what he talks about is that a lot of this new research is showing that these blind spots, is what they call them, are common in our other relationships as well. Relationships with our coworkers, with our neighbors, even sometimes with our spouses. And we tend to not know as much as we think. And not just about surface level things, but, but all sorts of things. He says sometimes we're completely wrong about political beliefs, about tastes, even about core values. We will sometimes lowball the ethics of our coworkers. We'll, we'll assume that our spouses are happier than they really are. Those kind of things. And I don't know if you've ever had those kind of experiences. You probably have where you thought you knew somebody really well, and then something happened, and all of a sudden you realized you needed to think again, right? You think you know a guy, that kind of thing. And we, of course, can recognize it's not a jump to see that the same thing can happen with Jesus. You think you know everything there is to know about Jesus, or you think you know enough, and sometimes you have to wake up and realize, "I I need to think again. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been thinking again and again and again about Jesus because what we always need most is a clear vision of who he is. And so we're in this journey called the gospel where we're trying to look at the entire life of Jesus from start to finish in chronological form. And we've broken this up into some different movements in his story. So you have five is the way we've broken it up in our own thinking. You have the arrival of Jesus, which is about preparing for his birth and then his entry into the world and the stories that we celebrate at Christmas, those kind of things. And then after the arrival period, you have this phase of obscurity where Jesus is doing a lot of interesting things and saying a lot of interesting things, powerful miracle type things that he's doing and radical revolutionary type statements that he's making about who he is and about calling people to follow him. But it mostly is happening like off center stage. It's happening over in the corner in the margins of society. And then from that, you move into the middle phase, which is what we've called recognition which is where Jesus goes public. And he starts to do some of these same things and say some of these same things, but in a public way that's drawing attention to what he came for. And then from there, we'll move into the revolution where he really moves his program forward, his mission forward. And then we'll end with the last phase, which is the victory that Jesus accomplished for us. And today I bring this up because we're actually transitioning from the obscurity phase to the recognition phase. 
the moment that we're going to be looking at in our, ta- in, our, in our time together today, one of them anyway, is, is kind of Jesus initially going public. So picture, uh, you know, not in the bad connotation, but picture a politician who's, who's unveiling, you know, I'm, I'm going to run for office and they're setting out on the campaign trail. So that's kind of like where we meet Jesus in the first story that I want to look at with you in Luke chapter 4. That's where we're going to read. Luke 4 is really Jesus' first big public move. So uh, let's take a look uh, once more and read the story of what took place. Chapter 4, Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 14. says, Jesus returns to Galilee, that's the northern part of Israel, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So I want you to picture the scene here in the synagogue in Nazareth. It's a room that's, it's probably about 40 feet long and about 30 feet wide. So it's not quite a square, more of a, more of a loose rectangle, if you will. And all along the outsides of the room, on every, all of the four walls, you're going to have these stepped seating, almost like these steps, except they're a little bit bigger so people can sit down on them in rows. And so most of the folks are seated around the outside. And this is where uh, the Jewish people at the time would gather to read the scriptures and pray. And, and sing worship songs and also like, you know, deal with community life and talk things through. And uh, they would meet every, every Saturday on the, on the Sabbath in the synagogue to worship. So Jesus came as was his normal custom. And there was uh, a couple of seats kind of inside the interior down on the floor section where the rabbis or other, other men, maybe sometimes young men would read a scripture and they would share a thought and they dialogue about it back and forth. So that's the setting. Jesus comes in, it's his hometown, Nazareth. They know him, they've heard of some of the things that he's been doing. He's been talking kind of like he's the deliverer, the Messiah. He's been acting kind of like he's the deliverer, the Messiah. And so they're eager to see what's he gonna do next. And so it's his turn. And so he opens up the scroll and he finds a particular place in the scroll that had the words of the prophet Isaiah. And he reads this part about how God was going to send the Messiah to bring freedom and release and was going to heal those who couldn't see. And it's going to put the world back together again. Pretty big text. And he rolls it up and he sits down and they're just locked on him because they're wondering what he's going to do next. And then he says, 
Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this is about me. And they're like, whoa, it's big words. He's saying right here. Says that they were, they were amazed, probably better translated, they were shocked at what Jesus was saying. And then did you, as you're reading this story, do you ever think to yourself, man, that took a turn quick. Like all of a sudden things seem to be fine. They're going along okay. He's saying cool things. They're amazed. And then they're like, is this Joseph's son? And then all of a sudden, boom, they're having a fight and they're trying to kill the guy. What's going on? And the point is kind of easy to miss. I think Jesus understands, well, clearly Jesus understands what they're saying when they say to him, is it this Joseph's son? Part of what they're thinking is, this is, like, this is our guy. Is it, this is one of ours from here. He's, he's come to do what we want. He's come to make our dreams come true. He's come to fulfill the promises for us. And Jesus says, listen, I know what you're going to say. What you're going to say is, how about you do a bunch of cool things for us? But what you don't understand is, just like God has always sent prophets to reach out to those on the margins, I'm not just here for you. I'm here for everybody. And they don't like that very much. They're not a big fan of what Jesus is saying about the nature of his program. And so they decide, <laughs> they decide, we have an idea. Let's throw him off the cliff. Now, he makes it through, thankfully, because his time had not yet come. But let's see what we can learn from this story. For starters, I think what we should see here is that apparently being familiar with Jesus is not enough to have genuine faith in him. I'm not who you think I am, he says to them. And maybe he needs to say it again. Now, this is, remember, the, the first opening scene of Jesus' public ministry. So what I want to do with you now is I want to flash forward a little bit and look at another similar event that takes place on the other side of a lot of cool things that Jesus does. So he's done more miracles. He's done more teachings. He's done, gotten more conversations with people. And on the back end of this phase of his ministry, he actually comes back home to Nazareth a second time. Let's see if it goes any better the second time. Mark chapter 6, verse 6 verses. Jesus left there where he was and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Same song, second verse. Again, get the big picture here. Back up and look at it as a whole. Jesus is about to start his campaign. He's about to go on tour. And he bookends this tour, front end, back end, by a visit to his hometown, Nazareth. First one doesn't go so well. So he does a lot of work, gains a bit of a name for himself, figures I'll go back home and see how it goes the second time. Second time still doesn't work. And here I think is the eerie truth that comes out of both of these events taken together. Those who think they know Jesus best may be the least likely to see him clearly. I need us to think about that for a second. I've had all week to think about it, and it hasn't been particularly fun. So if nothing else, I'd like to bring you into my misery. (laughs) Those who think they know Jesus best may be, may be the least likely to see him clearly. You might think that if anybody's going to get Jesus quick and jump on board, it's going to be the people who know him the longest, right? Yet not so much. 
But why? Why does this happen? So the people who were supposed to be close to Jesus sometimes miss him. Why does this happen? I mean, I guess in one sense, the answer is easy. I mean, they watched him grow up. It wouldn't be easy to believe that the guy down the street actually is the one who came to save the world. They know him better than anyone. They think they have him figured out. They assume. In the article I mentioned up top by this guy, Drake Bennett, he talks about how the reason why we tend to misunderstand the people around us and why we tend to think we know them better than we do is because we assume that since we've spent so much time together, they probably think like me. Since I like you, you probably think like me. You probably like the foods I like and hate the people I hate and vote for the people I vote for. We just tend to think if you and I spend this much time together, I'd imagine you probably think the same as I do. And so back to Jesus, I think that's what happens here. They assume and he surprises him and they don't like it. I think Jesus knew this was going to happen. He gives us an explanation for this a bit earlier in the Gospel of Mark. It's in chapter 2. You can look at it later. Some people come up to Jesus and they say, okay, so the disciples of these other rabbis are doing these things. Here's their checklist. You have a different checklist. Why is your checklist not like everybody else's? And he gives them a couple of metaphors. He says, it's like this. You don't take a piece of unshrunk cloth, so fresh cloth. You don't take a piece of unshrunk cloth and sew it into a quilt that's already been shrunk. Because if you do, then when you wash the thing, that piece of cloth is going to shrink and it's going to tear at the seams. It's not going to work. He says also, you don't, you don't take like fresh juice, fresh wine, and put it into old wineskins. Why? Because what happens, you put the juice into the wineskin and it sort of you know, pulls off some of that leather from the side and it becomes a part of the fermenting wine. He says, you don't put fresh wine into old wineskins. If you do, then you're going to burst the wineskins. You're going to lose the wine and make a mess. And Jesus uses both of these examples to say, in our language, you can't put me in a box. You can't expect me to fit what you already think I'm supposed to be. I'm not going to look like you. Don't assume that I look just like you. That's what they did. They're trying to fit Jesus into their mold. So think about this with me for a second. They've already decided what they want out of life, and their expectation is that Jesus give it to them. They come to Jesus saying, would you please give us the things that we've already decided that we want? Now, their specifics are unique to them, different from ours. Their specifics are, you know, we believe that, that, you know, you're come, if you're the Messiah, to like save the world, to redeem God's people, to save us Jews, right? You're supposed to save us and not the Gentiles, not the Romans. They're the enemy. We don't like them, not the outsiders, but the insiders. And Jesus comes and says, actually, I've come for the insiders and the outsiders. That's some of what he's saying in Luke as well as the Matthew text, which is about the same event. I've come for the insiders and the outsiders. I've come for all y'all. And they're not a big fan of that. So they've decided, again, big picture, they've decided what they want and they expect Jesus to give it to them. It's almost like they want Jesus to top them off. You know, so they got this glass of water or they are this glass of water. It's about three quarters full. Dirty water, but it's drinkable. And they're thinking to themselves, I just got to fill the glass. I got to get that last little bit. Right? And Jesus has always been around, so they just assume he's looking for the same stuff they're looking for. And then one day Jesus comes out in the open and says, hey, I can fill your glasses. And they're like, awesome, just top us off. And he's like, it doesn't work that way. You've got to dump the nasty stuff out and let me fill you in from the start. And they're like, who do you think you are? <laughs> are we like the people in Nazareth? That's the question I'd rather not ask if I'm being honest with you. Are we like the people in Nazareth? And I don't know. It seems like a bad idea to answer the question too quickly. Well, of course not. Like we love Jesus. We're with Jesus all the time. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's what should scare us. 
Uh, Lee Camp is an author who wrote a book called Mere Discipleship. Read it like 10 years ago, and I've never forgotten this one image. He says, American Christianity has been vaccinated against the real Jesus. He says it's like a vaccination where you, get, you inject into your bloodstream a small portion of the disease so that your body can get used to it such that whenever the real thing comes at you, you can fight it off. He says the same thing has happened here with Jesus. We've gotten just enough Jesus into our bloodstream so that our system has gotten used to him, such that when the real Jesus comes face to face with us, we push him off and we say, no, 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 that can't be who you are. We already know who you are and we are vaccinated against what he actually is and wants to do in our lives. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what he says. Is it true? It makes me uncomfortable to ask the question, you, you would think that we know Jesus best. Now, I know that when you look around our culture, there's a lot not to be excited about. I get it, but there's still a lot of Christianity here. As recently as 2010, we still sent out four times as many missionaries as the second leading country in the world. Over 125,000 come from us to others to take the gospel. That means something. And as of 2013, uh, one researcher uh, found that 88% of, of homes in America, and I don't know if this is the not exact number is correct, but it's probably close. He said he found that 88% of American homes have a Bible in them. I, I think it's at least safe enough to say that we're familiar with Jesus, especially here in Southwest Missouri. But the question is, has Southwest Missouri become a new Nazareth? Because those who think they know Jesus best may be the least likely to see him clearly. Gosh, and please hear me well. I hope the tone, I hope the tone is appropriate and is coming across the way I want it. Not just me, but from the text. I don't want you to hear me because I don't think the text is like in a scolding mode. You, you're, you're doing a bad thing and you shouldn't do it. I don't think that's what this text is doing with us. I think this text is looking at us saying, not so much you're doing a bad thing and you should stop, but you're missing out. <laughs> or at least you might be. Because you're putting Jesus in a box. Or at least you might be. Let's break this down a little bit further to see if we can get our hands around the danger of familiarity. I think you see kind of two halves to what's been communicated in this text. The first half is that familiarity often breeds unbelief. We know that familiarity can, can, can breed a bad attitude. We have our saying, familiarity breeds contempt, that kind of idea. And we, you see this, uh, you think about children. You can see this in kids when they think they figure out the right code words to get themselves out of trouble. So they do something wrong, you're like, all right, listen, that was not okay. And they say, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, please forgive me, I won't do it again. Now, can I go play? And you're like, no, 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 no. You think you know, but you don't. You think you get it, but you don't. You're saying the right words, but your heart and attitude aren't in the right place. And you don't understand how this works as well as you think you do. You're missing it. You're familiar with the process, but as a result, you've missed the point of it. Familiarity breeds unbelief. So we say with Jesus, yeah, 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 Jesus. I mean, I'm a church-going person. I get it. Jesus is at the top. Yeah, Jesus. I know. I know Jesus. Do you? Like, really? And maybe you do. God knows. Better than me. Probably better than you. But it's worth hanging out in the question for a little bit because of the second half of this. First half is familiarity often breeds unbelief. Second half is unbelief always means missing out. Mark 6, 5, and 6, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. You know what you should do 
uh, this next week. You should make some time to do this. It won't take long. Just read the context of this story in Mark 6, just a couple chapters before and maybe the chapter after. Just read a little bit of the context and just make a list of some of the things that, that Jesus actually does here. Things that he's capable of. Says Jesus can't do miracles here. And you wonder why that's kind of weird. It is kind of weird if you look at what's happening around him. In the chapters immediately around this event where Jesus comes home to Nazareth, let me just tell you some of the things Jesus does. He calms a storm while on a boat in the middle of it. Then he casts out thousands of demons from a crazy man who lives among the tombs because nobody can control him. Then he heals a woman who has had a bleeding issue for over a decade and none of the doctors could fix it. Then he actually raises a little girl from death and brings her back to life. Then on the other side of these things, he feeds over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two little fish. Then to make, just make sure everybody understands he's a pretty powerful guy, he walks on water to rejoin his people. These are the kind of things he does. And I know it's like, well, I'm not asking Jesus to walk on water, but you're asking Jesus to do something. And if there's anything that we've seen already in just a couple of months doing this series, it's that Jesus is doing things in your life. And part of the point of these stories is, I don't know what it is that's going on in you or around you, but whatever it is, the guy who walks on water and calms storms and casts out demons and raises dead people back to life and heals the sick is big enough and strong enough and powerful enough to do something about the thing that you're wrestling with. And Mark, in reporting these stories, wants us to know this is the kind of program Jesus is running. This is the kind of power that's available to him. And I think you'd probably be crazy to not say, I want a part of that. And yet right here in the middle of all these amazing things, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. I don't want to be like the folks in Nazareth. I don't want to miss out. So in the interest of not missing out on all that Jesus has for us, maybe we should just assume that Lee Camp is a little bit more right than we'd like to think. That I have vaccinated myself against the genuine Jesus. Let's just assume that that general familiarity with Jesus might be an obstacle to genuine faith. Let's just assume we need to let this text put us on notice just for a minute or two. That seems wise. Let's assume that these stories, that we need to let them shake us out of our religious complacency. Complacent faith will not survive the world that is just around the corner. And so I would suggest, if I could, that it would be wise for each of us to take stock to do a little inventory, to drill down deep and ask some difficult questions about our faith. How does this happen? How does Nazareth happen? Twice? How do decent people like us become the kind of folks who miss out on all that Jesus offers? I think part of the point is that we're never gonna have the perfect answer. And as soon as we think to have the perfect answer, we're in a dangerous place again. Part of the point is to live with the question. And so in an effort to live with the question, I think what might be best is let's just throw out a few questions for us to wrestle with, to do a little bit of a faith audit ourselves. Think of this as spring cleaning for your soul. Three questions I think that we should ask as we wrestle with this text. I'll give them all to you up front and then we'll talk through them one by one. Am I letting Jesus define my goals? Am I letting Jesus direct my steps? And am I diligently seeking the true Jesus? Those are the questions that I want us to spend some time reflecting on together as we move towards trying to find a faithful response to an uncomfortable story like this. First one, am I letting Jesus define uh, my goals? Everybody take out your phone, if you would. I know, like, we usually don't do this in church, but take out your phone, and you can ignore the notifications. They're not going anywhere. But open up to your Maps app. Why don't you take a look at your Maps app? 
If you don't have it, you know, if you don't know what I mean, just replace the word with Thomas Guide. It will still work. So open up your Maps app. Fairly familiar with this. How many of you have ever used this app before, your Maps app occasionally here and there, sometimes? Some of you are like, no, I never get lost. I don't need it. Well, for the rest of you who don't need it, let me tell you how it works. First thing you got to do is open it. Then the second thing that you got to do if you want it to work for you is very simple. You tell it where you want to, to go. That's how it works. You decide ahead of time, here's where I want to go, and you tell the Maps app where to take you. And then the job of the Maps app is to get you there. Now, I fear that some of us have spent so much time in the vicinity of Jesus that we've started to assume that he functions kind of like a Maps app, you know? I tell you where I want to go, you help me get there. So we decide ahead of time, we set goals, we have dreams. Maybe for you, it's relationship goals. You want a certain kind of relationship, certain quality relationship. Maybe it's a career goal or a success goal or an influence goal. Maybe you don't think about it in terms of goals, but your whole life is organized around having more pleasure or comfort or status or toys or fun or status or whatever it may be. You decide what you want. And then you come to him and say, I'm having a little trouble getting there. Can you help me out? And he says to you, no, that's not how it works. Let me show you where to go. Let me define your goals. And you say to him, but I've already got my goals. And he says to you, I love you, but there's not a whole lot I can do to help you. And he is amazed at our lack of faith. Are you letting Jesus define your goals? Step one. Step two, question two is, am I letting Jesus direct my steps? Now, this assumes that you've got a proper answer to the first question. The first, if you just live in the first question until, you, until, you, until you've done like a proper reflection, maybe with yourself, maybe with your family, your friends, or small group, whatever, your life group, and it, it, Jesus defining my goals. Once you've got it, then you've got to ask the second question, am I letting Jesus define my steps? Because even if you, let's take it to the map app, even if you're saying, all right, Jesus, where do you want me to go? And then you're plugging it in. After we plug in the destination, how many of you ever look at the directions and go, oh, I know a shortcut? I know a better way. We do the same thing with Jesus. So Jesus, like let's say that there is a relationship in your life that you believe Jesus has blessed. Awesome. That doesn't mean that anything goes. Let's say that you're on a career path that Jesus has blessed. You're convinced that you're doing the thing that he wants you to do. Great. That doesn't mean that you can step over people to get there. Your colleagues, your coworkers, your opponents, and maybe your competitors, even your family. That doesn't mean like you do whatever you want in, in order to get to that point. Maybe that uh, Jesus has told you, I want you to resolve this conflict in your life. And you're like, okay, do And you have the steps for it, but you're like, actually, what I'd rather do is walk in the room and tell them why they're wrong and I'm right. No, that's not letting him direct your steps. Maybe Jesus has blessed you with the family. Maybe you got kids. That doesn't mean that you get to just raise them up to do whatever you want them to do or they want them to do as if Jesus doesn't have an opinion in the matter. Now, there are as many specifics as there are people in the room. My point is just to ask the question, am I letting Jesus direct my steps? Third question, am I diligently pursuing the true Jesus? This is kind of an effort check. Not have you before, not will you someday, but are you right now in this season of your life with all of its particulars diligently pursuing the true Jesus, not just the Jesus who thinks like you, talks like you, votes like you, eats like you, but the Jesus who is accurately presented to us right here in this book. Are you genuinely and diligently pursuing him? There's a lot to this, but I'm going to point out one thing. And I feel like every time I get up here lately, I'm telling y'all to read your Bibles, read your Bibles, read your Bibles. I hope you're not tired of hearing it because I'm not tired of saying it. I hope you're doing it. 
And listen, if all you can do in this season of your life is come here Bible teaching, I understand that sometimes that's reality and that is something. But at the end of the day, eventually you've got to reckon with the fact that pre-digested meals once a week are not enough to sustain a healthy, growing soul. Baby food's fine for babies, but adults need steak and vegetables. And for some of you, the thing that Jesus is asking you to do is open the thing. You know, the same research that says almost 90% of us have one of these in our home suggests that almost 60% of us read it four times a year or less. No wonder we're hungry. No wonder we're confused. No wonder we don't know what Jesus wants from us or how he wants us to get there. Are you diligently seeking Jesus as best you can in this season of your life? No drama this morning. Just an uncomfortable question forced upon us by these two eerily similar events. Those who think they know Jesus best may be the least likely to see him clearly. Let's consider ourselves warned. And let's ask for help. Father, I want to lift up a prayer on behalf of all of us in the room. I want to pray, first of all, for those who are not at a place where they can honestly say to you, show me where the holes are in my faith. And I first want to ask for them that you would do something soon to show them that you can be trusted with such a difficult question. And for the people in the room who are at a different place and are fully ready and are right now looking at you saying, show me what's wrong with my faith. Show me where I've tried to make you look just like I want you to look. I want to see it because I want to make it right because I don't want to miss out on what you have for me. For the people who are in that place right now, God, I not only ask for clarity right now, but I ask that you put in them whatever it takes for them to clear some space, to give it some thought, not just right now, but over the course of the next few days course the next few weeks maybe as we open up the scriptures on our own as we wrestle with the things that you said and did and ask what are you saying to us what are you doing here we need your help because we don't want our familiarity with you to keep us from seeing you so help us in jesus name amen thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.